This is episode 40 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Episode 40 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Villanova University professor and poet James Matthew Wilson. He was with us on campus as part of our 20th annual fall conference on friendship. In our conversation, we talk about the real work of writing poetry how to listen to the muse, and why each of us should learn to write a bit of poetry ourselves. Let's sit down for this delightful conversation. Well, James Matthew Wilson, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ken. And thanks for coming to the fall conference. You know, you're going to be in conversation with Whit Stillman. Um, yes. Tell me about that. Well, I'm looking forward to find out what's, what it's going to be. The, um, uh, for a small but wise audience, Whit Stillman is one of the great filmmakers of the last 50 years. And, um, and so... I, like a lot of people, am very excited to find out um, what goes in to his his making of a film. He's he's made uh, five films and, and and one television show, and the um, you know the artistry of each of them is so impressive and so unusual uh, yeah. that uh, surely a revelation is at hand. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna learn what it what it takes to make a great film in an age that's known mostly for Marvel superheroes, right? Well, tell us a little bit about your own background. Um, you know, what? where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? These sorts of things. So here we are sitting at Notre Dame, and I'm from an old uh, Hoosier family. My, um, I, I had an ancestor who studied here at Notre Dame when it was a school for boys, and, uh, and a great-grandfather uh, who was not college-educated. In fact, he was a, at one point a hobo who hopped trains to go work construction out west and eventually earned by correspondence a um an engineering degree wow and but went on to found a a major construction company that amongst other things built the uh, notre dame retreat house and when i say he built it i don't mean um notre dame contracted with his company to build it what i mean is he showed up with a crew one day and they just put it up without uh just as an act of uh, charity wow so uh, the Midwest is, is deep in my veins and in Midwestern Catholicism. Um, but I, I myself grew up in East Lansing but before, of course, coming here for uh, uh, graduate school. Cool. And uh, so you came for graduate school. Uh, mm-hmm. What did you study? Uh, so I studied uh, English literature, but in the best, that is to say, most unusual way possible. I had virtually nobody um, working with me on my dissertation who had a degree in literature. My uh, dissertation director was the great poet and uh, philosophical theologian Kevin Hart, who was uh, here on, with an endowed chair for, for several years. And I was also, I'm proud to say, I was one of Ralph McInerney's last students. Oh, wow. And uh, so he was um, he was mostly there just for the spirit of kinship, but it was, <laughs> it was very rewarding to, <laughs> yeah. to even have that. Wow. So now what do you do as your day job? 
So I teach uh, in a program called uh, Humanities and Augustinian Traditions at Villanova University, and it's an interdisciplinary liberal arts program uh, where the curriculum is designed to ask and answer every big human question that you would need to know the answer to in order to live and to die well. So we have classes called Person, God, Society, World. Everything's covered. <laughs> yeah. And the, um, it's, uh, it, in some respects, it, it resembles a program like Program Liberal Studies or other great books programs in that we try to read widely and without respect to disciplines within the Western tradition. Um, but it does something that uh, I think is especially invaluable. Um, we begin with the argument that uh, most of the most important questions that a person needs to ask and answer are receiving very poor answers in our day. And some deeper, richer, and better account of those answers or response to those questions um, needs to be offered. And so we... Um, we genuinely begin with the current status of an argument and then dive deep into the tradition to find out what uh, resources might have to help us come at a, arrive at a more satisfactory account of what it means to be human yeah. or the nature of God and, or what it means to be a good citizen. And then doing the syntopical reading in the tradition across. Indeed, to, yes. To think yes. about that. Yes. Now, you mentioned poetry. And you are well known, of course, you're, you're a member of Catholic Twitter, uh, <laughs> which I think is where, you know, one of the places where I encounter you quite regularly. Uh -huh. um, and I know you as a poet. Mm -hmm. I know you as somebody who's releasing interesting Catholic poetry that is inspiring. How did you get into poetry at all? Well, uh, from a very early age, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, so, oh, gosh, I was probably 15 years old, and I was writing uh, an essay for an advanced English class just on Shakespeare's um, Taming of the Shrew. And the very experience of crafting sentences to make an argument felt really consummate. <laughs> it was just, there was something perfect about this activity of just figuring out the way in which words uh, have to stand in relationship to one another to make to make meaning, and um, so I decided while writing some no doubt dry and not very interesting academic essay that this is what I wanted to do. But I wasn't quite sure. I knew I wanted to write, but I wasn't sure what kind of writing I wanted to do. So perhaps inevitably, I assumed, well, I'm going to be a novelist. So I began writing um, short stories as a, as a teenager, and um, and went to the University of Michigan for uh, my undergraduate degree purely because they had a place called the Hopwood Room, which was just a, um, a room on campus that uh, administered um, a series of creative writing awards and was a place where faculty and other writers would just gather and talk about literature. So during uh, those years, I continued to write uh, fiction and uh, stories and then for novels, uh, I wrote four novels, I should say, before one day I realized that I had just totally lost all desire to write fiction. <laughs> and the reason was uh, that I had fallen in love with this crafting of sentences, but I, uh, writing prose fiction was beginning to feel like a real professional gesture to me. So 
this was probably when I was 23, 24. And when that thought occurred to me, I remembered a experience I'd had some years earlier sitting in a poetry class at the University of Michigan where the professor was trying his best to explain to us what iambic pentameter meant. <laughs> you know, everybody will say, yes, Shakespeare wrote an iambic pentameter, but they have no idea what that means. Right. <laughs> so the prof- professor was trying to break through our thick cranial uh, ignorance just a bit. Uh, and I don't know how far he got in his explanation of iambic pentameter before I just stopped listening altogether because my head was bowed down trying to write a single line in pentameter. And it took me the whole rest of the class to do it. A sonnet every day for five long years. Not a very good line of pentameter, <laughs> but a line of pentameter. And a truth. And a truth. <laughs> and I I thought, this, this is what I want to do with my life. And so I went home. At that night and after dinner, sat down with that one line and wrote 13 more, and I had a sonnet. And then I didn't write a sonnet every day for five long years, but I did write a sonnet every day for a week. And each one took me um, about five hours to write. And uh, it was the hardest, most grueling, but most exhilarating thing I had done. So um, some years later, when I realized I had lost the love for the kind of writing I was doing, I remembered the kind of ecstasy of that writing. And then I looked around me and I realized that when I was reading for pleasure, I was only reading poems. It had been a long time since I'd picked up a novel just for the joy of it. Mm. And so I thought, this is what I'm going to do. And I had an added bonus to it. Um, If you're a fiction writer, if you publish novels, you actually stand a scintilla of a chance of making a living at it. Uh, That doesn't happen for poets. (laughs) And so I thought, I will always do this for the love of it because there's no other reward. And so uh, that's been kind of true. <laughs> uh, it's always been a joy for its, for its own sake. Um, I'll add one more sort of postscript to this, which was um, it took me five hours to write, um, to write each of those sonnets. Uh, but for those of you uh, listening for whom this, that sounds like an occasion of despair, uh, don't despair. It gets easier. It's kind of like riding a bicycle. And, um, <laughs> and in fact, uh, uh, to... I, uh, when I was engaged to be married, I had promised my wife that I would um, would compose a poem for uh, to be included with the little gifts we had for guests at our wedding reception. And it was two days before our wedding, and no such poem had arrived. <laughs> and my wife was, or my then fiance was, was uh, kept calling me on the phone saying, "Can we have a poem now, please?" And uh, <laughs> and it just it hadn't come. And then, um, but two days before the wedding. I was. I spent. I had spent the first night in the um, the home that were that was about to become our home when we were married, and I woke up from uh, the night sleep early in the morning, and I had already in my head the lines: uh, "Though neither young nor old, nor full of wine, not blind exactly, though my sight was poor, I crouched a beggar, waiting for a sign so obvious the dead could not ignore." I just sat up in bed. I said, oh, good. In my dreams, I just wrote the first quatrain of a sonnet. <laughs> so I went out to the living room and pulled out the notebook and copied that down. And I just continued, a flaneur so much as is possible in a despoiled city such as this. Amid the listless crowd, I casually stroll in search of one stare not quite purposeless. A bibliographic recluse in a swoon, I mused what word could make me close my book. Some old west drunk passed out by the spittoon. What patient face could cure me with a look? Then you came, sign, stare, cure, and word, and brought a new life where none was, but one was sought. And I just thought, 
it gets easier. <laughs> <laughs> Went back to bed. <laughs> How long have you been married? Uh, so uh, 14 years. Yes. That's glorious. So uh, one longer than a sonnet. Uh, that's right. <laughs> we will pass out of the sonnet phase. <laughs> we'll be mo- going for epic next. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I hope you achieve it. Yeah. So it's interesting. The language you use to describe mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. of course, is evocative of the muse. The mm-hmm. muse had not had not deigned to visit you yes. until until it was needed. Yes, absolutely. Right yes. until almost yes. the last yes. moment. Where does the inspiration come from? Well, there are many muses. One of them is deadlines. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, though, though I certainly couldn't feed my family on, on what I earn from poetry, one of the great pleasures of the last couple of years has been writing poems uh, on commission. Yeah. Um, so this last year, uh, I was commissioned to write uh, a poem, for instance, for, um, to celebrate uh, St. Philip Neri, to write a hymn to St. Philip Neri. Um, Cardinal Newman... St. John Henry Newman right. wrote some wonderful poems about uh, Philip Neary. Uh, they're great poms, but they don't really work well as hymns. And so, um, so I wrote, uh, was commissioned Come to write on, a hymn. He has one hymn that's really good. So he has, he has did, more he, than one yeah, good hymn. But, exactly, exactly. Uh, Just not the, not the Philip Neary one. That's there. right, yes. And so, uh, so uh, uh, and then I, I, I just I wrote two poems for the first issue of, uh, of Bishop Robert Barron's new magazine, Evangelization and Culture. Yeah. And uh, I was asked months in advance to, um, to write just one poem. And, uh, and so the day before the deadline, I said, I'm just going to sit around and read the poems I think I need to read in order to get inspired the right way for what I think I might want to do for yeah. this magazine. Uh, and I did. And the poems came out, and I made the deadline <laughs> <laughs> with hours to spare, no less. Well, so that's go. a big muse. Um, uh, the best account of what inventive writing looks like, I do believe, is T.S. Eliot's very pretentious early essay, Tradition and Individual Talent. You know, Eliot was always kind of embarrassed about the sort of uh, impertinent tone of that essay in his older years, anyhow. Um, uh, and it's an essay that makes a lot of assertions and no supporting argument. But I think it's absolutely right uh, in its account of how the creative process really works. And the way he, in which he describes it is that, um, that you simply, the mind simply acquires a series of unrelated fragments. And they just keep accumulating from elsewhere until they reach such a pitch or depth that they begin to... Uh, catalyze with one another uh, and to form a unity and then it's time to start writing a poem so I'm sort of like being a uh, writing poetry is a little bit like being a junk collector (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, you accumulate things until it's time to make something new out of all the junk yeah and you've sat with it and it's been percolating and fermenting exactly yeah yeah and there's very little as Eliot puts it there's very little of the poet in it the poet's a little bit of affiliated platinum that just causes the catalyst to begin. He doesn't actually <laughs> add much himself. Wow. Which is, of course, even the phraseology is itself poetry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> unfair, unfair. <laughs> what is the relationship of your, then your poetry to your day job? I mean, you say you're, you're, not, you're not feeding the family based on this. You may get a steak dinner every now and then. Yeah, so, but. so I had these great aspirations. Uh, oh, gosh. Well, so I mentioned how I didn't study with English professors uh, I never wanted to be an English professor. Uh, my interest in literature came from its capacity to be an, a good in itself that could also 
change your life. And so um, the way in which I approached literature was always um, as um, an important element in a, in a whole way of life. In fact, uh, what I was probably reaching after was the ancient conception of philosophy or the um, medieval conception of theology, which was that contemplation, every contemplative act, is not something you do that stands apart from your life, but is your life, right. is the best aspect of your life. So, um, so when I came to Villanova, it was um, primarily with the expectation that I would finally have a chance to teach not just literature, but literature fully integrated with philosophy and theology, so that the whole of the intellectual life really was just a way of life. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how it has been. Um, when I came, however, I thought the one thing that I'm saying goodbye to that I had loved very dearly was being primarily a poet and, and, and teaching the writing of poetry. But, um, but actually, it was only after I came to Villanova that my um, reputation as a poet began to, to grow, and um, with good reason, because all the poetry I'd written before that was pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so one day, uh, my, my chairman said, how are you not teaching a class in the art of verse? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, because you haven't asked me to do it. But, <laughs> so, but I will take that as I do. An and, and it's, I love it because um, um, uh, I, have, I would have no interest in poetry as opposed to, say, prose fiction if it weren't for meter and rhyme because that's what poetry does that nothing else in the world does. Mm -hmm. So I teach my students the grammar of meter and the grammar of rhyme. Um, you do not seduce a lot of students to come into your class by saying, I'm, this is a course in grammar, but I can't help it. That's just what it is. <laughs> to be, if, you wouldn't leave college illiterate and capable of writing an essay, so you're not fully literate if you can't also write a good line of pentameter. Um, you'll need it someday to propose to your wife, perhaps, <laughs> <laughs> or, or for the wedding reception. Um, that's what you sell them on right there. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to get married? Try poetry. Um, it's so worked, It's worked for literally centuries. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's one of the actually clearly – it's like original sin. It's clearly demonstrated. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and so we – we do the hard, grinding, grammatical work of mastering meter and the poetic forms, but the way in which I teach, teach that is that this really is an activity within the context of our lives as, as rational beings, rational animals, as contemplative creatures. And so, um, and so the, a lot of the students will tell me that it's, it was the most useful class they took at Villanova <laughs> because they're used to really getting these great liberal arts classes where they're thinking about big ideas. And we talk about those big ideas in the class. And then, but we take those big ideas and in the end, there's, there's something that stands apart from the mind and stands apart from us, right. the poem that's been made. A created thing. Yes. And there's, that's a deeply satisfying, that's deeply satisfying for everybody, right? Right, right. Yes. Wow. So what have you published of late? So um, I, had a, I had a kind of ridiculous year um, <laughs> in, in, a, in a happy way. Um, uh, so in 2014, I published uh, my first full-length collection of poems called Some Permanent Things. Um, but the poems turned out to be not as permanent as they thought they were. They were <laughs> there were a lot of defects of workmanship and actually a sloppy use of rhyme that I thoroughly uh, deprecate to my students, but I wasn't living up to my own example in, in my work. So I rewrote that book and expanded it, um, adding a final 
sequence called the Christmas preface to it. Um, my, so with Christmas coming up, you might consider a gift of some permanent things to someone you love because, because it concludes with the this one is permanent. We promise. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I will not make any further changes. I promise you. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the reviewers said, uh, yeah, his first some permanent things was carved in wood, but now they're made of stone, which is true enough. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, and so that book was released actually right before Christmas last year. Um, and right after um, my second full-length book of poems called The Hanging God, um, uh, which is a book of which I'm very proud. It consists of, it has a, a sonnet sequence uh, called Wiped Out, which is sort of a um, story of, Sin, lust, and depredation, interior, <laughs> interior uh, wastelands, and uh, and it's it's mirrored in the book by um, a station's the cross that's in the meter of uh, Jacopone de Todi's um, Stabat Mater, which uh, everybody has sung. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, and then there are other poems that that weave in and out of the book um, around those two longer sequences. Uh, right around the time that The Hanging God was published, I was asked by the St. Benedict Sixteenth Institute for Sacred Liturgy of the Archdiocese of San Francisco to write a poem commemorating um, another project that they had commissioned, which was um, a musical setting of the Mass by the great um, composer Frank LaRocca. Um, his Mass was called the Mass of the Americas. So I, was, uh, so I flew out to uh, San Francisco and prayed the Mass, uh, on um, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Our national feast. Yes. <laughs> and, then, um, and then returned home, and I had told them that I wasn't just going to write a poem, that I knew something was coming. And in fact, I already knew the title of the poem. It was going to be The River of the Immaculate Conception. And I, uh, I mentioned earlier the fermentation, the slow distillation of a poem. With this commission, there were th- stray thoughts that had been in my mind for 10 or more years that finally I knew it was time uh, for them to, to come out into a, in a poem. And so I wrote a, a long seven-part poem uh, that consists of, of two poems on the nature of the liturgy, um, two poems meditating on what it means to live in a place, and then three narrative poems that tell the lives of saints, uh, St. Juan Diego and the Revelation of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is told in a simple Ballad that mirrors the beautiful simplicity of the um, the Aztec language um, text for, on which I drew. Um, a long narrative poem at the heart of the poem that's about the Mississippi River, which is at the heart of our country. Uh, so a long narrative poem on, on Father Marquette and his journey uh, down the Mississippi. And then, it can, uh, and then the third saint's life is of St. Elizabeth Se- uh, Seton, which... Mm-hmm. Um, in one respect, is the one I'm most proud of because it's the story of uh, Elizabeth Seton in her her young years as a as a distinguished lady in New York society, and then her conversion, and it's it's told in a, a variant ballad form that's um, that comes out of the 19th century, so it's very Victorian, um, uh, and the style, the right, uh, the st- the voice of the poem, as it were, is told like a Jane Austen novel. Oh, wow. <laughs> How Whit Stillman-esque, you know. It's exactly right. <laughs> well, would you favor us with a, uh, a reading? Sure. So, um, as I said, the poem, uh, The River of the Immaculate Conception, uh, has seven parts. Uh, and, and though the poem as a whole um, 
traces the whole history of Catholicism in North America. And in fact, it's dedicated to the memory of the great historian Kevin Starr, who was in the midst of writing a multi-volume history of Catholicism in North America when he was, um, uh, when he died, uh, you know, unexpectedly. Of course, mm-hmm. who, who expects to die? Right? Not right. I. Um, but um, I, I tried to do justice to his really um, global vision of what it means for America to, in a very profound way, to be a Catholic country. Um, but it, the poem also follows Frank LaRocca's mass and, and, and alludes to it at various points. And so the final part, which is a meditation on what it means to speak, uh, to, to speak of poetry, to speak of music, to speak about the mass, um, takes its title from... Uh, uh, one of the hymns in Laraka's Mass. So it's part seven. It's called Hasten to Aid Thy Fallen People, appropriate for Our Lady of Guadalupe. <laughs> How does one make a song of holiness or speak of music without spoiling it? They both seem more than our tongues can confess and born above in our world do not fit. What's more, those who ascend with them are closed in on themselves, struck dumb and all in ecstasy that they have heard seems flailing, foolish in a fallen word. But every rising strain must rise indeed to lend a form to what in truth is light and manifest peace as if it's a deed and give transcendence some arc of a flight. The purity of every saint will be daubed on with sloppy paint and what no thought may comprehend or say must be taught in the staging of a play. The gift of form because so fascinating, as we bend down to work with knife or ruler, reminds us that beyond it's always waiting some piercing light. Consider how the jeweler makes every cut upon a stone, for its sake, but not that alone, his patient labor wasted if a line does not refract and multiply and shine. And any humble implement may serve to figure forth and yet conceal that light, So that high thought is felt upon each nerve, and mystery is given to our sight. Just this way things are lifted up, a chalice wrought from wooden cup, a little dust and water mixed to clay are molded into birds that fly away. The mass is first his earthen sacrifice, but also taste of peace and heaven's throne the gift that leaves behind all thought of price, yet where, no less, we raise a plangent groan, for at its finish we are sent into the world both dark and bent, that bearing out the virgin's hastening aid, from ruined choirs some good may be remade. Amen. (laughs) Wow. I I just rendered Ken Elena speechless, and that's a first. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, wow. Uh, when is this volume available? So um, a, a week from today, I will be in Washington, D.C., where Archbishop Cordiglione of San Francisco will say in the extraordinary form, the Mass of the Americas at the National, at the National Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. Wow. Uh, so I'm going to hear this mass and pray it for the second time, which I cannot wait for. And in a certain way, even in a better way, uh, just it's going to be really quite marvelous. And then the day will be followed. The Benedict XVI Institute has arranged a day-long uh, conference on Catholicism and the arts. And so uh, Frank and I will be uh, interviewed together um, 
at the Catholic University of America and at the conclusion of the day's events. At, so it's 6.30 next Saturday. If you're not watching football, here's something you could do. Um, uh, the River of the Immaculate Conception will be officially launched. Wonderful. Well, James Matthew Wilson, welcome back to Notre Dame. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for sharing that your poetry. Thank you for uh, listening to the muse. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Thank you to James Matthew Wilson. You will find links to books of his poetry and to the video of his fall conference conversation with director Whit Stillman in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is, I don't know, by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>